Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and on this episode, we feature two really important and timely books that take a look at activism and hope, and consider the effects of trying to work to change the world for the better. One is a novel that takes a look at activism in Scotland and beyond, and the other is a toolkit for a more hopeful world. We start with Kirsten Innes. Just last week, the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, no less, recommended Kirsten's latest book to her many squillions of Twitter followers. And it's really not hard to see why. Destined to become a future classic, Scabby Queen spans more than three decades and focuses on singer and activist Cleo through the various different characters she interacts with during her life. Tell me, Kirsten, if you would, just the guiding spark for writing this big, brilliant novel. Well, there were, there were a few things that kind of fed into it. The lead character, this isn't a spoiler, um, almost right at the start, she takes her own life in a friend's spare bedroom. And um, I had heard in my sort of wider circle of acquaintance of somebody who had taken their own life in their in their house and left their body for their flatmate to find. I, I couldn't quite move past that. It just seemed like a, a really strange act selfishness I was sort of trying to work out in my head and as I work things out in my head I try and write them into characters to try and understand things and I was trying to think about the sort of person you would need to be to do that and the idea of calling the book Scabby Queen came from the game it's also called Old Maid you discard all the queens except the the queen of spades and then the deck is dealed out and anybody who has the queen has to get rid of her and the the last person who's left with the the scabby queen gets a rap over the knuckles with the the whole deck. So I was really intrigued with that as a metaphor for the idea of somebody who would go through life having sort of really short, intense relationships. So it was those two kind of things came into it. And tell us a bit more about this queen at the centre of it all, Cleo. She's a deeply vivid character. You know, I'm still thinking about her and she's somehow very alive. She just seemed to make sense. The the decisions that I was making for her seemed to make sense. I, I had very, very little time to write this book. The first draft that I submitted is actually pretty much what's gone into publication. We've done it. We've done an edit with the, the publisher. So there wasn't any kind of planning, really. I mean, I had the details of her life planned out meticulously. I had charts for where she would be at various points in various years and how that would impact on her. But in terms of creating her as a character, she just seemed to make sense to me. Yeah, she's a very kind of magnetic, charismatic person. She's also incredibly dogged. She would kind of say that she lives a life in solidarity. She lives her life in pursuit of justice and sometimes she's blind to the negative effects that can have on the people who end up splashing about in her wake, as it were. The the crucial thing for me with this book was that I wasn't, we, we hear a lot from that kind of character, that's a very protagonisty character, but what, who I was interested in were the people kind of around her and the ripples that she had as much as she herself. She's seen from kind of about 20 different points of view along the way. Some of these narrators recur, some of them don't. But for me, those were the characters who I felt emotionally closer to. Cleo kind of remains quite unknowable, which was important to me. I was thinking about how you never really fully know a person. And I thought it would be interesting to try and do a a 360 view on a person from the outside, from all these different people who meet her in different times and stages of her life and have completely different impressions of her. Yeah, I love that, that we witness her in loads of different glimpses. And as you say, those kind of time frames. Could you say then a, a little bit more about some of those types of characters that we meet? I'm thinking of Neil, the journalist, for example, and why those characters, I suppose? I didn't have any great scheme. I, I, I wrote this while I had a, a toddler and I was racing a second pregnancy. I finished the book two weeks before the baby was born. 
I mean, my first book, I spent five years writing it. It was half the size and I kind of agonised over every detail. And with this one, it just kind of seemed to make sense. So we've got characters like Neil, who's a he's a journalist who we meet throughout Cleo's life. He first meets her when they're both about 20. And when she dies, she's about 50. He's in love with her and always has been. But I, I was kind of interested in the ways that sort of unrequited love can kind of sour or turn into something a bit unsavoury. Look at kind of attitudes towards possessing people a little bit he was an interesting one actually the turn in him kind of surprised me when it came around I was I was actually very sympathetic to Neil when I started writing and then they have a a rather disastrous one night stand I think I was actually writing that at the time all the Me Too stuff was coming out and I was thinking about consent and you know just how all the shades of grey kind of relating to that and that was the kind of turning point for Neil's character for me this kind of negative (laughs) force coming in towards the end of the book. My two personal favourite characters are uh, Sammy who is a girl in Brixton who Cleo meets when they're they're living in a squat together and um, Donald who is her godfather and really the only father figure she has in her life. Yeah tell us a little bit more about Sammy. I was staying down in Brixton for a few days promoting my first book. I met an ageing crusty gentleman who was lovely. He spoke to me at length one night in a pub and um, I went and I started researching. He was telling me all about the squats that he had lived in in the Brixton Arches, all about the, the gentrification of Brixton, also about this place called the 121 Club. And he was talking about how this was this amazing site for activism and I began looking into it. He had a website which gave me a bit more history that he directed me to, so I looked into that as well. I realised as as I looked into this history of the one two one club, Sammy in, in my book she's a she's a waitress at and her their squat is just down the road. It was actually originally squatted by a black woman, Olive Morris, in the seventies, but this seemed to have been pretty much written out of the way the kind of predominantly white activists and anarchists were talking about their history of squatting in Brixton, which is historically a black place. And I was really struck by that tension. So I really wanted to write about this sort of activist scene and I could see immediately how Cleo would fit into it. It really worried me. It it seemed to be another layer almost of kind of white gentrification, even though it wasn't on top of Brixton. So yeah, I mean, Sammy Black, which was yeah, I, I, the book's gone through a couple of sensitivity reads at my own insistence and I've tried very hard to kind of listen and be open to that. I'm so aware of the, the difficulties of being a white author writing a black character. But Sammy is my favourite. She's also the target, as it were, of a, a spy cop, which is the popular term that's that's kind of come about for these undercover policemen who in the 80s and 90s were infiltrating activist groups. And the best way they, could, they, they found they could do that was by having, they had manuals directing them to have get into relationships with women in the activist circles and some of them to stay undercover had children with these women so yes this this is what happens to Sammy and she discovers this through Cleo's uncovering of the case and Cleo's almost peripheral in, in this storyline she's just a catalyst for destruction with me my kind of heart and soul was with Sammy and in, in that I, I just kind of wanted to examine this sort of psychological effect that would happen on a character and just suddenly discovering that the man who had abandoned you with a baby was entirely not who you thought he was and that sort of level of destruction as well and what, what it might do to somebody. I love the idea of, you know, that there are certain things that you want to explore, you know, or that you that you, you feel you wanted to think about or reflect on. Why would you want to reflect on that particularly? What is the quality of it that's of interest to you as a writer? The reason that Scabby Queen's in the form that it is, is because I got all these little spikes of interest and I haven't kind of stepped outside to analyse them necessarily. I, I kind of get the idea for a person forming around a little bump or an itch or a little bit of grit and 
because any writing that I did during Scabby Queen just had to go into the book. Any creative impulses that I had, I had no time. So anything I had needed to become part of Cleo's world somehow, which makes sense for all these kind of different changing characters. But I think it's just a, I get an idea for a person. I get an idea for a personality or I'm interested in how a certain thing, so your friend's body uh, being left in your house for you and only you to find, or the uncovering of the father of your child being not who you thought he was. These these ideas kind of harden into characters for me and I just kind of have to go with them. I wanted to ask you a wee bit further about activism and art then. You know, Cleo uses her musical you know abilities as a way to really educate and challenge people and kind of try and make change. I wonder if you could say a little bit about activism, what role that plays for you in your own work. And I guess what one does for the other, does art fuel the activism and vice versa? Oh, yeah. The whole book is very, very kind of politically charged. And 2016 was a a bit of a horrible year, (laughs) obviously, Uh, with the the Brexit vote and then Trump's election. And I had a a very small baby and I was going through what I think is probably postnatal depression now in, in retrospect. I had been, you know, I've always been politically active all my life, not anyway to the extent the clue where the other characters are but I I was raised in a a very left-wing household taken out on demonstrations from a very young age. I I think this whole book is my reaction to 2016 and everything that came afterwards and my partner was actually finding it quite frustrating because throughout that year I seemed to be retreating from any sort of political conversation I I left Twitter I didn't read the news I kind of I basically had blinkers on or so it seemed but this book was my way of coping with it and writing it all through and out I think it's something I only recognized when my partner read the first draft and said oh that's where it all went It, it just kind of came from there I mean I guess the thing that I relate to in Cleo is that without wanting to sound too pretentious about it without wanting to sound too clear about it I am motivated by injustice I guess injustice and empathy because I really think much as this book goes into politics the way that I've written it is or the way I hope people will read it is about these tiny connections between people and so much that seems to me to be going wrong in the world of politics at the moment can be traced down to absolute failures of empathy failures to empathize with other human beings. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Certainly, um, places, you know, social media and places like Twitter, they're, they're certainly not helping, I think, in terms of bringing people around to a sense of mutual kind of understanding or kindness. And one of the things I really admired about the book was its kind of depiction of working class characters. I'm thinking of Eileen, perhaps specifically Cleo's mother, and that, that those really strong women. There's a line in the Sarah Baum book about a grandmother and she talks about her having a, a radiant but under-celebrated life, which I really like because those were my grandmothers too. And I just I just wonder why, in your opinion, we don't see many of those women in books. Um, because the, the people who tell their stories maybe don't know <laughs> many of those women. I don't know. A, a big undercurrent in the book is that society as a whole tends to find women less and less interesting as the age are more and more easy to ridicule. But yeah, uh, strong working class women are gigantically underrepresented in, in the world. And I think these women themselves do not tell their own stories. The, the book really explores the way that music, the music world, I guess, and world of politics, that they both really um, commodify women. And you've touched on that a little bit there with, you know, kind of women aging and, and the sexualization of women. And I just wondered, why was that something that you wanted to write about? Um, again, it comes back to 2016, which was a very formative year for this book. I didn't do any writing, but I did a lot of thinking. The other thing that happened in 2016 was that celebrities were dying. Big, big, big name celebrities. It started with David Bowie and ended with Carrie Fisher right at the end of the year. Um, but Carrie Fisher had such a big 
year in the public eye. I'm, I'm a bit of a Star Wars fan. So I'd been kind of following the new Star Wars film came out and Carrie Fisher was on Twitter and she published her book about having had an affair with Harrison Ford and she was very very visible once again and there were so many people who were outraged with her for not being 19 year old Princess Leia in a metal bikini and for being a woman on Twitter who was just kind of launching her anger on the world a lot she was ridiculed she was laughed at she was pointed at and then she died it was as though nobody had ever said anything negative about her she was she was basically sainted and it really got me thinking wow it, it just seemed like such a stark example of how we really do prefer female celebrities to be kind of young and pretty or dead and voiceless that deliberately and definitely fed into Cleo there and the, the reactions to her. Kirsten, can I ask you then just about activism and, you know, kind of, I guess, hope. I'm thinking about politics and how it feels like for change to happen, we have to live in a certain degree of hope. Do you feel, I guess, hopeful? Do you Are you optimistic about what's coming down the line? Yeah, I, I, you, you have to have optimism and, and hope to kind of keep going and keep feeling that it might be possible to make a change. It, you know, I, I personally, I feel that the teenagers of today are absolutely brilliant. I mean, my goodness, when I was a teenager, I was such an apathetic. <laughs> Britpop was out. We were all just like, yay, let's be ironic. And just all Spice Girls, mate, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but the teenagers of today are just magnificent. You know, that's got to give me hope. I mean, just a, a wee while ago, Donald Trump did a, a rally and Gen Zers bought out all the tickets. They booked out all the tickets and nobody turned out. And I mean, that, that's that's amazing. It was like a worldwide, they, they kind of, they communicated a worldwide network of Gen Z teenagers buying out all these tickets so that only about 5,000 people turned up to this million-seater rally. It probably saved a fair few people from COVID as well, bless them. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be very difficult as a mother, um, but yeah, it would it would be very difficult in the current political climate to, and we, we, we do have kind of moments of hopelessness of what on earth am I bringing my children into why on earth have I brought children into this world but the fact is that I have done we have done so we have to kind of just make sure that we're bringing good humans into the world and kind of teaching empathy from a very early age I think is, is a really important part of that you have to have hope you have to how awful the world must be for these people who can't conceive of any better future I think Thank you, Kirsten. Scabby Queen was published just last week and is available now from all good independent booksellers. And I highly recommend that you get hold of a copy. I guarantee that you will not regret it. We asked Kirsten there about how hopeful she is. And this is the subject of the new book by Bernadette Russell. Her How to Be Hopeful is exactly what we need at the moment, an essential toolkit for rediscovering hope and empowering us all to create a kinder world. I want to kick off, if I may, just with how the project and the book before this one, 366 Days of Kindness, how, how much did that book lead to this point? It, it all feels like part of one long journey. I think when I started my 366 Days of Kindness project, I was kind of looking for the light, looking for some sort of hope, actually, some hope, some positivity in the face of what felt and still often feels like insurmountable problems. And I recognised my own or what felt like my relative own smallness and powerlessness in that. And I also sort of thought, I think that's how a lot of people feel. You know, not many of us have the ear to anyone in power. So I think what 360 
366 days of kindness taught me was the power of accumulative small actions and also taught me to look at the world the same view through a different window I always say so because I focused on kindness I saw it and I noticed it and I still do so it's affected me in making me feel more positive and making me feel more hopeful because I saw because I paid attention to it the beauty and the kindness and the compassion that was in the world so it changed the way I thought and that led me to hope or to considering hope. Is hope related to kindness do you think is is hope the other side of the the sort of different view that you just mentioned or is that kindness is that different window onto the world if you see what I mean? Kindness definitely supports hope. I don't think it's the only thing, but it feels an incredibly important ingredient in hope. And witnessing it, doing it, practicing it, being kind to yourself, all of those support hope and help you be more hopeful. But other things do as well, like, you know, noticing amazing scientific innovations or joining in with campaigns. I have to say, though, I've been thinking and writing about hope for a while now. Whenever I get stuck, I always come back to kindness. It's always the answer. So even when you feel hopeless, I think the best thing to do is to be kind to yourself and be kind out there in the world. And that will restore hope to you. So they are very connected. Yeah. I was really interested. So this is cutting right to the very end of the book. In fact, in the acknowledgements, I love an acknowledgements page. I read things cover to cover. I loved the idea that you felt you had to, um, you passionately wanted to defend hope. And I thought that was a really interesting notion of why hope needed to be defended. And it made me wonder about what hope's brand is. <laughs> you know, so I, I just wanted to ask you about that. What does hope sort of embody for you or why did you feel it needed defending? So uh, first of all, I think people use words differently and I had to unpack a little bit what I meant by hope and the difference in me between hope and optimism. I think it gets sneered at a little bit, hope, because people imagine it means wishful thinking. So it's it's just sort of blowing out a birthday candle or wishing upon a star, but that isn't what it is to me. So it's hope is about daring to imagine that a better future is possible and to use that daring, that courage and the strength that's drawn from that to take action, to move towards that better world and I felt that even though the conversation in the last 10 years about kindness and compassion had grown enormously that also alongside that some of the people that were doing that were doing amazing things you know community work or they were planting trees or they were helping out homeless shelters and doing all these amazing things still expressed to me hopelessness and despair in the face of the bad news in the face of climate change in the face of division so it felt to me that kindness was being practiced and it was becoming more fashionable which was a brilliant thing and becoming normal which was an amazing thing but that hope was still diminished and I felt like I had to go and find who was acting on hope and find out how we can just keep hold of it and use it to power through change. I remember watching Greta um, Thunberg when she said her famous speech, we don't want your hope. That really struck me because I thought, well, I, I do need hope. I can't carry on trying to make any sort of difference in anything without the hope that it's going to be successful. So in a way, hearing her say that was one of the main catalysts. And the sort of passion and the drive to take action. But I do think we need to at least imagine that it's going to work in order to sort of not burn out. Sure. I mean, I love that in the book, there's the line, hope feels like the basis from which all possibilities spring, which I just totally loved. And I agree with you that you need to feel like that your actions have meaning and can change things. But yet so many people lack it. You also say it doesn't it doesn't necessarily come naturally. Why do you think that is? There's lots of sort of really interesting studies about what happens to us after sort of around about 
eight, we switch from having a sort of positivity bias, if you like, to a negative bias. And and that, I guess, is developed in order to keep us from danger, to help our survival. So we tend to remember the things that have endangered us. We tend to remember the negative as adults so that we are able to survive better. And I tell a little story in in the book that I imagined actually when I was at the Natural History Museum and I was looking at the sort of skulls of ancient people and I thought imagine someone was walking through the um, the forest had a lovely day out with their friend ate some nice wild berries had fun swam in the stream but on the way back tripped on a root of a tree they would have to remember that because that root was what might have endangered their lives and that would be the story they told they wouldn't probably tell about the stream or the berries they'd say I nearly tripped on a route to warn other people so that their lives weren't in danger. And in a way, that's the, still the way we report and tell stories now. We tell the negative side of things and it's because we need to protect ourselves. But it actually doesn't serve us when the negative stories are so overwhelming, and I think they are largely in the media still, that they immobile us. They fill us with so much fear, we're unable to do anything. And I think that can cause really bad mental health problems. It can cause people to not try to do anything to change their lives or the world for the better and we can override those negativity biases by just sort of training our brains to notice when good things have happened and settling on them but it seems like there's a sort of general consensus that we think like that in order to survive so I think that's why it's maybe hard (laughs) to stay in a hopeful place. I am especially sort of drawn to the bit in the book where you talk about the stories that we tell ourselves and how that the impact that that has on what we believe about ourselves and what we believe ourselves capable of. And I know that you, you, as well as writing and making theatre and performing, that you do a lot of workshops. And, you know, I I just wondered if you could say a little bit about that, the idea of teaching hope, teaching people to to look at their lives through a different window. Yeah, it's lovely that you mentioned stories, because I think it's all about stories, actually. And I mean all of the stories, fictional, non-fictional. So I do workshops, I suppose it sort of cross over into sort of therapy and come across and help people who feel a bit stuck, like they don't feel they're able to realise what their dreams are or they don't feel effective in doing anything. And often it is about the story that they tell themselves, which might be, you know, it's kind of negative self-talk, that area. haven't really achieved anything. Everything I do, I fail at. I'm not very good. I'm not very clever. And it's encouraging people to tell that story differently so a really sort of good simple way of doing it is to sort of focus on the positives and on the highlights and on the successes but that should include all the little successes as well like learning to drive or or learning to swim or just having a really good night out with your friends and if you start to be kinder with yourself talk and think about yourself more positively and tell the story of your own life so far more positively I think it grows hope because you what you're allowing yourself to do is realize what you've managed to already do what you've managed to already achieve the things that you've already done and succeeded at and from that I think you can grow hope that you can do those things in the future dream then let yourself dream what do you want the next bit of the story to be and in a safe space people can go a bit wild with that they don't have to say they're going to make a plan yet but I think people need a chance to sort of play with their dreams and play with what they hope for and then comes the work of working out how to get there as as with anything, you, you think of what you want and then the high of it comes next, I guess. I mean, I think that's one of the things I, I really admired about the book is that it does lay down those actions and the how to get there. And, and it reminded me of something that um, the American writer Jenny O'Fill said in an, in an interview that I read quite early on in the pandemic, action is the antidote to dread. And I've sort of carried that with me throughout all this, thinking like, yes, the sense of doing rather than not doing. In everything I do or I try to do, I always try to suggest a to-do. And that 
came from my own frustration. I might see somebody amazing do a talk or I might read an amazing book. But I would sometimes say, that's great, but I don't know, what can I do though? <laughs> and so I think it's sometimes, and actually often people have said to me, oh, I liked your idea, but I had a better one. And that's even better. You know, that's what you want. It's just to, to try and offer a suggestion of what might be done. And also we live in urgent times that require action of us and actually great joy and empowerment can be found in the action as well so it doesn't have to be sort of a punishment or a a terrible hardship to become active and take action it can be fun so hopefully I always try and make them sort of quite creative and playful invitations to action because I think I learned this from JP Flintoff actually who I met at Wigtown if you have fun doing the thing you're more likely to be able to keep it up So I think action and finding joy and fun in the action are really important and they come along hand in hand with learning what hope is. I wanted to ask you a little bit specifically about one of my favourite chapters, which is about community and about that image of community being like a murmuration, being part of a bigger thing. And I know that a lot of people will have, for many, this period will have been a time of being more more engaged with their community and their neighbours and neighbourhood. And I just wondered, though, for, for people that maybe for whatever reason haven't been able to do that but would like to, what tips you might offer? Yeah, no, it's really important, I think, to recognise that not everybody has had that chance, but that it has awoken this appetite in a lot of people. So that's a that's a brilliant question. A wonderful side effect of COVID, although there are without, you know, hopefully it goes without saying lots of awful things. There are lots and lots of more threads and connections with communities. And there are definitely going to be lots and lots more opportunities to volunteer. Now, I know not everyone's able to do that. And it requires time and lots of other things but I would say a great thing to do is access social media if it's your sort of thing and literally have a look on Facebook have a look on Instagram have a look on Twitter use your place name that I live in Deptford so if I've joined a few local groups actually then you can find out what's going on I would literally walk around your if you're confident to do it walk around your neighborhood and it can be just not very far like a small distance a 20 minute walk and have a look on notice boards because there's a lot more things signs going up literally physically in neighborhoods now about we need someone to help us build hedges in the wildlife park we need someone to help us plant trees when we start doing that again or we need someone to help us pick up litter or we need volunteers to help us with the soup kitchen so there's lots more opportunities to volunteer it's a really satisfying and beautiful and deep way of feeling connected to where you live and I found it enormously helpful and it's just really nice now to have quite a lot more people to say hello to is really lovely I think you've inspired me or your book has inspired me to seek out some tree planting chums because I, like like you, am a huge tree fan. Very um, satisfying yeah. sort of planting things as well, especially something as long living as trees. And there's something really humbling and beautiful about planting something that's going to outlive you. It's really nice. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it about nature, isn't it? It's, it's the relative smallness of us and the bigness of it is helpful. And I, I would like to know a bit more about your podcast, because I'm aware you've got your own podcast that you host. What? So tell us a bit about that. Where can people hear it? How did that begin? So, yes, it occurred to me as I was writing, I was like, I'm never going to be able to get all this covered. This is just the beginning of a conversation. There were lots of people that I wanted to get in the book that I couldn't because it would have been like the biggest, fattest book in the world. And also because I wanted to continue the conversation. So 
I decided to start a podcast and I brought it ahead when lockdown happened because I wanted to respond to what was happening then. So it's a really wide variety of people. I've spoken to NHS nurses and architects from Memphis and poets from Nashville and community workers in Deptford. So yeah, if anyone's listening and who would like to talk, mainly I've been trying to get people to look at their work and their lives through that lens of hope and hopefulness and ask people where that is, but also allow people to say if they don't feel hope full and sort of have a conversation about that as well and it is called how to be hopeful so it's the same name as the book and it's been lovely to have to be able to listen to people to some really wonderful people just talk for an hour such a wide variety of people as well I feel really honoured to have been able to continue that conversation. Quite lovely I hope you may get some people from Wigton itself and Bernadette maybe a stupid question but I I do wonder what we'll hopefully always have hope I just wonder about the future if you like of hope what state will hope be in a post-pandemic place yeah it's interesting isn't it I feel like we're so close to it it's very hard to analyze the long-term effects what's going to happen in the next few months I think we need to remember and and when I say we need to remember I think it's really important to literally make a note of it write it down how amazing people were during lockdown. All of those mutual aid groups that started up, the lovely boys from Bradford that went knocking their elderly neighbours' doors with food parcels, the endless stories, Captain Tom and, or Sir Colonel Captain Tom, and, you know, and all the, all the wonderful stories, all the little stories, all the rainbows in the windows, all the chalked poetries on pavements, all the neighbours helping each other out. It's really important to remember that because it feels at the moment like this might be a long thing. There'll be a long outfall from it, which will involve sort of lots of hardships and difficulties. And I think what we need to do to take that hopefulness with us to the future is remember what we are capable of. And it's not a theory because we've just seen it. And it's not a dream because we've just seen it happen in front of our very eyes. And to hold on to that, the beautiful things that we demonstrated, we were all capable of, every one of us, and the appetite for helping each other that we witnessed so recently. So to take us through, to continue to take us through what, you know, the the other difficulties that we have, I think, is to hold on to that, to remember what we did and what we saw. A huge thanks to Bernadette. How to be hopeful is out in September and I'd say that that should be on everyone's wish list. In the meantime though, do subscribe to Bernadette's podcast How to be hopeful. It's available from the places you would expect and on Podbean. Well, thank you very much, Kirsten Innes. Thank you very much, Bernadette Russell. And thank you very much for listening and for tuning in with us again. We hope that you're well and keeping safe and look forward to joining in with you next time. Hope that we leave you feeling just a little bit more hopeful than when we started. Take care. Bye-bye.